2: Learn everything about building a business using Facebook, Instagram, and their growing family of apps and services for free. Everyone has a next level, so whether you're just getting started or want to hone your existing marketing skills, there's a free online course to help. Visit fb.me/slash blueprint/slash adweek to learn
0: more.
1: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. Uh, We've got an awesome lineup here representing all the different parts of the Adweek uh, mega empire uh, to talk about some of our predictions for 2019. Uh, I'd like to welcome back Jason Lynch, our TV media editor. Jason, always great to have you on. Hey, happy to be back. Uh, we've also got back Anne-Marie Alcantara, our uh, tech writer. Uh, uh, and uh, you're going to be kind of covering the massively wide swath of all things tech for 2019. So thank you for taking on that mantle, Anne-Marie.
3: Of course. Anytime.
1: Uh, and we've got back uh, Diana Pearl, staff writer covering the Brand Marketing Beat. Diana, great to have you.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: All right. that's right. We're going to break format uh, because we have a lot to talk about. We have an entire year to pack into one. Uh, less than an hour podcast. So we're going to skip the news and ads worth watching section and just kind of stuff this whole thing. This is our last podcast of 2018. So we're going to kind of pack in as much content as we can. So with that, let's move on to our predictions for 2019. Anne-Marie, I have a feeling tech is still going to be a thing next year.
3: (laughs) Maybe, maybe. We'll see.
1: You know, it'd be nice if it just was like, you know, how about we curve back? You know, Adweek actually ran a cover. I want to say this was in like 1980, maybe like 5 or 86 uh, that I dug up once. And it was called The Death of High Tech. <laughs> it was literally the cover headline.
3: That was the wrong prediction for us to have made that long ago.
1: <laughs> Apparently, like back then, that meant like... Uh, audio and vcrs like the term just kind of meant something very different um but it was about how basically consumer pocketbooks had kind of gotten tired of (laughs) of the cost of these in you know rapidly evolving technologies but yeah so wrong as a prediction but right as a prediction are all the ones that you're about to share with us so hit us with your first prediction for tech in 2019
3: so as some people might be aware, Facebook had yet another uh, privacy breach <laughs> this past week. Uh, I think it might be number three or four this year. And so just on that note, uh, privacy and data is just going to become a bigger point next year. Consumers and, and federal privacy rules will definitely start getting and in, in more involved. And I mean, wouldn't we be surprised if more um, senators started to push for kind of a GDPR type law in the country because, as we can see, Facebook and other companies just can't be really trusted with our data and that they'll also tell us on time. Um, so, yeah, just, just you know, more of your data out there, more of your information out there. Just expect it and start to live with it for next year.
1: Well, so um – you know, remind us again about the difference between GDPR, uh, which affects uh, what is that? Just the European Union, correct?
3: Yes, yes, it is.
1: And so, wh- what's the difference between what they have under GDPR and kind of the way it works for us here in America?
3: Uh, so GDPR, and I'm no expert, so please, podcast listeners, if I get anything wrong, don't roast me too badly. But
1: Anne Marie got
3: at Anne Marie on Twitter. Yeah. Anyways, um, uh, GDPR basically makes you consent to sharing your data in the EU. So it's no longer you just opt in and and you kind of just have to tell the companies you do want to give them your data. And and if companies misuse that data, they get fined. And I believe they may even, um, like, be brought into parliament and all, like, just kind of be over, overwatched by the government a lot more closely than they are here in the US.
1: And, and so, you know... Wh- Obviously, you're predicting here that privacy and data are going to continue to be a big uh, issue uh, for tech brands and for all of us as consumers. Do you what do you do you expect anything to really change, or do you just think, as we've seen in the last few weeks with congressional hearings of bringing in Google CEO, do you think the government's just going to get a little more involved and hopefully get maybe even a little savvier about this stuff?
3: Yeah, I think we're definitely going to start seeing the government. Yeah, definitely get more savvier and and honestly propose privacy regulations. I mean, some of the senators have mentioned, um, like, doing something like GDPR in the country, but not as, like, strictly because you can't impede innovation and all of that. But I think we're definitely going to see some sort of possible policy crafted around this because, at least for the representatives and senators that are aware of what's going on, they, they know how serious it is and how important it is to consumers for that data to be, like, kept safe and guarded and, Not leaked all the time.
1: Oh, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, hit us with another uh, tech prediction for 2019.
3: Uh, Yeah, so I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this little device called the Echo or the Google Home, but those two will definitely start to just keep on growing in popularity. I mean, with the holiday season, I'm sure more and more people are going to get them in their stockings, under the tree, and... I think more than anything, marketers and brands are going to start to test the smart home devices and see, like, how they can advertise there, how they can, like, grab you there. And maybe they'll invent a skill and then it'll be sponsored by them. So I think we're just going to see more brands kind of take advantage of just all of these devices being in people's homes and bathrooms.
1: Yeah, it feels like, and, and Diana or Jason may have thoughts on this, too, but it, it feels like we're still in, at least in 2018, we're still in this um I don't know the best term for it, but this period of adoption, I guess, of the voice devices, you know, it's like they're so cheap now that people pick them up even if you don't really know. To your point, I think they're great like stocking stuffers and they're great kind of uh, just simple gifts where you're like, I don't know, here's a hot thing. Uh, but, y- you know, there's not much to do with them unless you're like an intense kind of power user. <laughs> does it Does it feel like 2019 might be the year that... that you know, brands and, and, you know, media outlets and other people start actually producing skills that people will use beyond just, hey, what's the weather? And, you know, what it, it, the I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what I ask mine. I mean, I have, like, three of these things, and I ask it basically <laughs> the weather. Occasionally I ask it the date if I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> like, you know. uh, but what do you guys think is they're going to start – how is that experience going to start changing in
2: 2019? Well, one – that I always think of as a brand that is using these devices as well as Capital One. I know they have a partnership with the Amazon Echo, and you can <clears> ask, like, what's my credit card balance or et cetera, et cetera. And I think they're – correct me if I'm – this isn't, you know, my wheelhouse, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think they're one of the only financial institutions to have a partnership with the Amazon Echo. Um, but I think things like that are, are cool. And, I mean, I think about – I check my credit card balance all the time, and to be able to do that just by asking instead of having to log into the app – to be honest, it seems like the exact same amount of effort, but maybe some people <laughs> would prefer to ask rather than, you know, tap their phone. So I'm not an Amazon Echo user and I am or at Google Home and I'm resisting. I don't there are some things I would like to keep tech-free, and I feel like that is one of
1: them. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Jason? Any thoughts on how we'll see that? Uh, like, what, remind us again, what's your home setup in terms of voice activation stuff, and, oh, and kind of how you expect it to change next year?
0: I, I don't have much of one. My my daughter uses an Echo. Um, we have another Echo in the house. We're debating on whether we will use it. For me, uh you know I think I agree with what a lot of you guys are saying like I would use it for very limited things and and this idea of using it to shop I would personally be very wary of because not having you know not having that extra screen that's basically like confirm this is what you want and just kind of trusting that you know when I say order me more or whatever product it is that it's going to be exactly what I want, it's going to be sent in the, the you know the type of shipping that I want, that it's going to be sent to the right person I'm going to be really wary of that, um, but I, I feel like if somebody can crack the code on that and do it in a way that people are going to be more confident and comfortable with using, then that could be a big boon for retail.
2: I agree. I also think like maybe I'm quote unquote old-fashioned. I don't even really like to order things on my phone. I like to be on the computer, make sure it's like the right credit card that gets me the right kind of cash back for that place. Like, And also I live in New York, so I either send things to my office or ha- my house because I don't have a doorman, yada, yada. I don't know. It's, I agree. It's too many things that could go wrong when you do it just on your voice.
1: I remember the early 2000s, there was this push to create, uh, I don't know if they had a cool name for it, like uh, appliance computers, maybe they called them, but it was... The, the idea was to create a little, uh, ideally, touchscreen computer that you could have uh, in your kitchen where you could pull up recipes. Like every time they showed an example, it was always like pulling up a recipe. And what's funny is it flared up and then just died as a trend because the technology just wasn't there yet. And these were all like kind of proprietary uh, things. And so they're just, it, you know, this is literally like 2002 that we're talking about. And yet that there was technology that did that. It cracks me up every time I had one of those. Uh, I bought it when everyone was getting rid of them <laughs> for like $2, you know, and um, the, uh, it, you know, what it cracks me up when I see these new Amazon devices and these new voice activated. It's like, and this one has a screen and I'm like, we're kind of back to where we were, uh, it, you know way back at the beginning of, of the century, uh, <laughs> except now it has voice activation and it actually works. But I'm like, yeah, that's what kind of what I want. Like, I want to pull up a recipe with my voice, but I want to see it on a screen. And so I feel like it's just, I don't know how much longer these non-screen uh, voice devices are really going to be a thing. I think once we can get to where, as long as they have some sort of screen on them, even if it's not great, like people would kind of want to have any visual feedback whatsoever uh, versus nothing. But um Anne-Marie, I have a, I have a uh, prediction request. Can I hit you with that?
3: <laughs> yes, of course. Okay.
1: Uh, Casper. Um, I don't know. I'm only thinking mattress brands cause I bought a mattress recently. Uh, Lisa, Uh, I don't know, Tuft & Needle, whatever, all these these million startups that have been disrupting industries (laughs) and shipping things to your door that you used to have to buy elsewhere – like we have just been flooded with these, my Instagram feed. Much like everyone's flooded with these, uh, I feel like I've been punished for buying a mattress because now I just have like <laughs> seven hundred mattress ads every time I open anything. What's going to happen with this? Are we going to see this trend just keep growing? Is it going? Are they going to start getting acquired? And and is that? Are they going to like the smaller ones going to start fading away? What's going to happen with this?
3: That's a very interesting question that I've been thinking a lot about, um, mostly because uh, in other tech news, Uber and Lyft have filed her IPO, and people were saying that's because a recession is coming. And so a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands are, you know, banking on all the extra money we have, and we're spending, spending, spending. And then if a recession were to happen, no one's going to want to subscribe to toilet paper at your house once a month, which is a direct-to-consumer brand. Um, There's also one for towels. And I I mean, I don't even know if there's going to be as many big acquisitions as well. I mean... Um, Walker & Company was acquired this week by P&G, but it wasn't as a big payout as some people expected, which also signals that, you know, I, I think these companies can expect to be bought out and they're going to have to come up with more ways to— actually generate sales and not just advertise to you on Instagram over and over again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll be fascinated to see. I mean, at some point, it just feels like, again, mattresses is maybe the easiest category to look at just because they're they're so high profile and there's so many of them. But I'm like, this is not sustainable to have this many brands competing to sell you mattresses, you know, all at the same frenzied level. Uh, And the one I ordered, you know, it's one of those where I'll go ahead and say I got an avocado. I don't know how people feel about it. (laughs) <laughs> these different brands, but, uh, but, you know, it was, it was interesting that they have no inventory. Like when you order it, they, they make it because oh, wow. they don't have a, a warehouse sitting around like they, So you, you wait like three weeks or whatever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it was just the whole time. I was just fascinated thinking like, I don't, I wonder if, if this is going to be like the dot-com boom, you know, where it's just like, ah, oh, man, remember when there were like 75 food delivery startups? And, <laughs> and I mean,
3: we were back in that era again, right? Like, yeah. Where there's a million of those startups as well that yeah. try to deliver you food. And it's like, did we not see what happened last time with all of this?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, it's – I I that's my completely amateur – I'm not a professional tech reporter like you. But I do feel like next year is going to be the year that we start to see either acquisitions or just companies kind of merging or folding, you know, just dropping off. Every category now, to your point, just – just flooded. All right. Hit us. Uh, why don't you give us one more tech thing and then we'll uh, we'll move on to brand marketing after that. But what, lay, hit, lay us uh, out with another tech one.
3: Yeah. So uh, one that me and my colleague, Lisa Lacey, who's a tech reporter as well, we're talking about is this trend of um, stores becoming cash- cashierless, as well as our new favorite acronym, BOPIS, which is <laughs> buy online, pick up in store, that companies are really trying to like sell to people. Because it's cheaper to do that than to ship it, and, and, uh, and then people can come to the store and possibly you know shop some more when they've already shopped. And uh, those two trends we, we think are going to just pick up a lot more in retail, especially the cashierless one. I mean, Amazon Go supposedly coming to airports and you know bringing that whole shebang to, <laughs> to a new group of customers who maybe aren't as tech savvy like the ones in Seattle and, uh, and other places where Amazon Go is currently in. And it'll be interesting. I mean, um, it, some people argue that, you know, not having a person at checkout is, like, the better way to go. And, like, going cashierless is, like, slower and kind of more annoying. And, you know, sometimes you always have to, like, flag someone down to help you out. And so we'll see what what happens. But it, it'll be, you know, interesting not talking to anyone when you go into a store anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh Diana, Jason, uh, thoughts on the cashierless store potential?
3: I'm a big fan of BOPUS. Is that how you say
2: it? <laughs> yeah. I use it a lot in my everyday life. And I do think because I think about a lot of times when I get things online, I'll go return them in store. So I don't have to pay any sort of return shipping fee. And so I feel like this is kind of an extension of that. And honestly, it's a way to make brick and mortar relevant, which I think is something a lot of companies are struggling with. So I think it'll definitely be something that continues to grow.
0: Yeah, it's interesting and then there's there's also those, sometimes the reverse. Like we uh, – my wife and I were doing some furniture shopping um, and there are certain stores now where you can't buy anything in the so – you can't walk out of the store with anything. They they ship it to your house and I've seen that uh, you know more and more. So it's interesting that like it's going in both directions where mm-hmm. you have to order and then you pick it up in the store and sometimes you can't pick it up in the store. You have to pick it up at home, so –
2: yeah, Nordstrom has a store like that, and yeah. there's a few I think in California where it's there's no inventory and mm-hmm. it's all. But it's, I went to one when I was out there just because out of curiosity, and it's nice. They have like a nail salon, and you know it's really more of like an experiential place than a purchase place.
1: Yeah, you know I've realized lately when I shop somewhere and I have like a good experience, it's usually one for one of two reasons. One is like I could get in and find exactly what I needed, and it really didn't matter if there was a human there other time, the other far extreme is when I didn't really know what I was looking for. And that's, you know, and I've noticed that service is getting better. You know, there was that time where you'd go into a retail place and half time, they didn't know anything about what they were selling. They're just (laughs) like, Oh, good luck, you know? And I I worked at Barnes and Noble, like way back in the day. And that was kind of their strong point was they felt that their salespeople or just their staff in general were considered, you know, kind of, tour guides almost of like, cause it's a bafflingly huge store when you walk in. And a lot of times people are looking for something somewhat specific or for recommendations. And that was something they really drilled into us is like, and I remember one of the rules was hand them the book. You don't, you don't say like it's back there and like point to a shelf. Uh, you, you like walk back there with them, you pull it out, you hand it to them. Now I'm sure part of that is to like make it a little harder for them to like put it back and walk away without paying you. But the, uh, but I think also it was just to convey this idea that like, I'm here to personally help you. So I think you're going to see those extremes where it's like you walk into William sonoma or something, they make it this very personal custom shopping experience, or you walk in and there's no humans and there's just a robot that rings up your stuff and <laughs> I don't know, shoots you with lasers if you shoplift or whatever it is they do. All right. Well, thank you for painting the portrait of our dystopia in 2019. Uh, Diana, let's talk uh, brand marketing. So I don't know if you want to start us out with what you think brands will do or what you think kind of marketing trends you'll see. Um, Hit us. Yeah,
2: I mean, I have have a few like themes I think that will be, you know, big in 2019. The first one is um, content. I went to the ANA Masters of Marketing Week um, in October, and really that was my biggest takeaway from talking to CMOs and marketers and listening to these presentations was everyone was talking about content and how, you know, now it's easier than ever to escape more traditional forms of advertising. Like, you know, you can watch Netflix. You don't have to watch TV ads. You can – you know, people aren't reading magazines as much, so you can escape print ads. Um, But branded content is something that's a little more subtle and a little less, you know, in-your-face this is an ad – Um, And that seems to be something that marketers are really investing in um, and trying to focus on. And that, with that comes um, influencer partnerships because a lot of times that branded content is in the form of an influencer partnership and like an influencer creating content on their blog or their Instagram. Um, So I think we'll see a lot of content in 2019 and that's only going to grow and become a bigger um, part of marketers' budgets and how they – choose to advertise
1: Let, let's let's kind of pause right there to talk influencers because i feel like we this is a topic that's going to span across all four of the uh kind of areas that we're talking about tech marketing tv and media and creativity you know that w- this was the year that i felt like brands kind of went influencer crazy um and just were out there like speed dating like crazy <laughs> with a bunch of these like oh <laughs> they've got 30 million followers on instagram or youtube or whatever and then And then it was also the year that a lot of these kind of bigger names just straight up imploded themselves uh, personally. So what did what did we learn this year? What did brands learn this year? And this is kind of up for anybody, but uh, the going in, I I feel like they're going to be a little more cautious about influencers going into 2019, uh, just because so many got burned by their relationship with people who turned out to be, you know, just kind of dumbasses.
2: Yeah, I definitely think we're going to see, and this is something also. I feel like you hear a lot of CMOS and marketers talking about um, a shift away from these, you know, mega mega influencers who have the millions upon millions of followers, and a move towards the quote unquote micro influencers, which is defined, you know, kind of vaguely. But I've heard, you know, five hundred thousand or less, three hundred thousand or less, um, and these people are a little more reliable. They have a little less, and usually when you have those millions of millions follower counts. A lot of times those are a lot of bots. Um, So I think we're going to see a big move towards the micro-influencer and even, I don't know if you guys read that New York Times piece about the nano-influencer, which was people who have like even a thousand followers and they don't get paid, but they get product. So for them, it's just like a way to get free stuff. Um, But I think there's going to be a big move towards that. And because these people are, are a little less in the public eye, I feel like there's less room for them to screw up almost. I mean, I guess they could, but when they do, it doesn't cause the same sort of national scandal the way it would if, you know, uh, what's that, the, the Paul, Logan Paul? <laughs> yes. Like I feel like he Jake, did it. Yeah. Or maybe it was Jake Paul. One of the Pauls did, some, did a few very offensive <laughs> things, and I feel like that caused a lot of controversy. Um, and then I think we're also going to see um, more brands pay attention to influencer fraud and try to find new metrics to measure like how many followers are bots are, are the is the influence they're buying actually legitimate and authentic um, and that was something that Unilever's outgoing CMO Keith Weed talked about it can and I think that um, that's something we're that brands have kind of ignored and haven't really realized but people are definitely buying um, Instagram followers especially with like algorithm changes and Instagram engagement isn't as reliable as it used to be. Um, so I think those are two big things we'll see with influencer marketing next year.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I should give a shout out to kind of our, um, I guess, equivalent maybe in um, Sweden, a, a magazine called Resume. Uh, some friends of mine there did this uh, investigation where they looked into what percent of influencer uh, in Sweden of the, the biggest influence, what percent of their audiences were bots or at least seemed uh, sketchy, and it was like thirty five percent. So yeah. like a third of their followers are just blatantly kind of not humans. And then they also followed up by the journalists themselves. Then went and bought a bunch of followers just to see how easy it was. And the answer was crazy easy. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's it was a a fun deep dive on the articles are in Swedish, but uh, but if you look up resume and influencers, you can probably find it. But um, Jason, I also feel like there's this was the year where part of me wondered are digital influencers is the line going to get blurred between the people we see on tv who we think of as like you know tv stars and who we think of as youtube stars was that line going to blur i feel like it didn't really blur this year though that I, you were still either one or the other
0: yeah and and i don't necessarily think that it's going to anytime soon uh i i think a lot you know, when i go to, to especially new fronts, which is the kind of the digital version of up fronts, so the 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 on uh, streaming version of the upfronts, and a lot of these companies they they partner with YouTube stars. So these YouTube stars were there, and they're saying, you know, oh, this is really going to be, you know, th- 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 this is going to be our, our key to success. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't, I don't know that there's been a few who've been able to make the transition, but it's kind of the exception to the rule, and it almost makes me think of like way back several decades ago when like the TV to movie gap was really really tough and where it was like movies were way up here and TV was like oh i, I you know maybe one day i can i can be in a movie and you would see like you know Denzel Washington make a leap in the 80s but that was basically it now it's very fluid but i think that this skill set that you need to have to be a youtube star just doesn't translate to to TV and to film so and and i don't Feel like it almost feels like when people have made the leap, it was almost by accident. It's not that they've like figured out, you know, they figured out the formula to do so. So I, I don't, I really don't see, you know, maybe, well, maybe there'll be an erosion of those kind of lines in the coming years, but I don't think in the next year or so that we're going. to – I still think YouTube stars is going to be YouTube stars, and and you know, they're still going to be kind of you know, siloed off.
2: Yeah, and I also think what you get with a YouTube star, like you get them on video, so even if they go to TVs or, or movies, like you you can still get their content on YouTube. Whereas I've seen like a bunch of fashion influencers this year expand into like having their own lines and all of them have like sold out immediately and done crazy well. And I think that's because that's something that you know, you can't get Mm -hmm. a product designed by them just from their blog or their Instagram. You know, this is something new they're offering that they're not offering anywhere else. And I think that that's a smart sort of influencer brand extension.
1: All right. Diana, hit us with another uh, prediction for brand marketing in 2019.
2: I think we're going to see a lot more uh, talk about brand purpose, which has been, I feel like, a really big, buzzy phrase, you know, this year, last year. But more brands than ever, I feel like, are going to start aligning themselves with a cause. Um, And, you know, the big example I feel like we saw of this this year was Nike's Colin Kaepernick um, campaign, which was really Nike, you know, taking a stand and aligning themselves with Colin Kaepernick. And even though that there were risks, in terms of, you know, not everyone in America, not every Nike shopper is a fan of Colin Kaepernick and what he stands for. Um, but Nike made the decision to sort of just say, we're going to stand with him. We think it's it aligns with our brand and it's important for us to send this message um, to really positive results. You know, sales ended up going up and though there was, you know, initial, you know, wavering in the stock price, it eventually rebounded to higher than before. And um, I think more companies will see... And obviously Nike is a huge brand and they have a lot of, you know, brand loyalty and people who will shop at Nike no matter what. Um, but I think companies will see that they were able to take take this sort of risk and survive. Um, and so more brands will sort of follow in their footsteps in the future, I think.
1: It's, it's interesting. We just finished our roundups on the website of uh, the 25 best ads of the year and then also the 15 best marketing kind of stunts of the year. And, you know, it wasn't until you mentioned that that I really made the connection that, and again, this is us picking them, so it's not like this is based solely on metrics, but our number one ad of the year was the Colin Kaepernick print ad uh, from Nike, uh, which, to your point, was a, you know, big cause-related or issue-related marketing push that was very divisive our number one uh, marketing stunt was Whopper Neutrality uh, by Burger King. And that's one that was very early in the year. uh, But, you know, people probably remember it. But that is the most shared Burger King ad of all time. Uh, And the reason it was shared is because they tackled this issue of net neutrality, uh, which unfortunately was, you know, repealed. Uh, The protections were repealed in June. Uh, This came out in January. But, you know, Burger King wanted to tackle that head-on. Uh, they did it in a way that's informative and real. They didn't just be like, "Hey, net neutrality is weird, huh?" Or buy some burgers. Like they they directly addressed the issue, and it you know caught fire. It sparked all this uh, discussion. It got people who maybe didn't think all that much about net neutrality to think about it. I think they they said that they generated 2.3 million signatures on a petition to uh, protect net neutrality. And so I think you're right. I, I think we're going to see that. Every time these brands try something like this, I mean, there, there's exceptions. I think um, one that we kind of point out as being divisive was McDonald's flipping the the M into a W on International Women's Day. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like that kind of chuckle is like the it's like it was bold in the sense that getting a global corporation to do anything with its logo is very hard. And I liked seeing a brand do something that wasn't. Like, hey, we made an ad with Rosie the Riveter and like, <laughs> yeah, keep it up, ladies. Like, you know, it was <laughs> a legitimate thing. I mean, they they it wasn't quite as physical as they implied. Like they only flipped the, the M in, in one location, I think. But they they changed the packaging in like a 100 locations owned by women. And they, you know, they did some content around, it. they changed up their website. It just felt to me like it was a halfway step, but it was a, a decently good step just because they knew they were going to get crap for it. Like they knew that that people were going to say that's kind of, you know, shallow. <laughs> but uh, but at the same time, I was like, oh, they're putting a foot in the water. I just think that brands that did it better, like Burger King and Nike, showed that, yeah, and you can make a ton of money doing this as well. Like it, it's very successful. Um yeah, yeah along
3: along those lines, I I mean back to your like direct to consumer brand point earlier, um, like a few people have been in, in the space have been kind of saying that the brands that will win in, in that area, you know, because there's just so many brands out there trying to sell you something of everything, are the ones that do stand for something, um, like Walker and Company, you know, shaving products and and hair care products as well for uh, people of color, which a very underserved market. Um, there's two different like lingerie, uh, kind of Intimates brands, Lively and Third Love, which are also focusing on like expanding bra sizes and, and just being more inclusive than like traditional ones. And, and they're the ones who are making the most noise. I, I mean, I think it was Third Love who, I think, put up yeah. a full-page ad, right, in the, yeah, in the New York Times about the Victoria's Secret. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, makes- you know, they've got a lot more to lose than Victoria's Secret and, and other companies, but... They did it, and and I think that speaks to kind of what both of you are saying, that, you know, it's time. <laughs> and there's a way to do it smartly and a way to do it where you are going to make more money as well doing it. Yeah, definitely. I think brands
2: have realized that the potential payoff of making these statements and, you know, kind of winning over customers in that way and also being, you know, authentic to their brand values and their beliefs um, is worth, you know, any potential backlash.
1: All right. Uh, Diana, you want to hit us with one more before we uh, take a break?
2: Yeah. Um, I think – this one is sort of an agencies ish prediction, um, but we're going to see a lot more um, moving in-house um, from agency to in-house marketing um, from a lot of CMOs I spoke to this year. It sounds like that's something that people are really starting to pay attention to, and I mean, it's a huge buzzword now. And then also just the diversification of different advertising channels, you know, I interviewed. Um, Mark Pritchard, the CMO of P&G at ANA, and he said that, you know, you think about 10 years ago, really the focus for someone like him was on television ads, and now there's so many different uh, mediums he has to consider. So – and I think those mediums are only growing with more platforms popping up and all that sort of thing. And the advertising for those could be handled by somebody in-house rather than at an agency.
1: Yeah, I'm still, I mean, I, I probably fall into the the same categories. A lot of creatives on the agency side is like, I'm skeptical. I think we've seen some in-house uh, work that's, that's really impressive, uh, but not a whole lot, you uh-huh. know? And uh, it, it's like compiling our ads of the year and all this other stuff and the stunts of the year. I want to say there were only maybe three that were in-house out of like, one list of 25 and one list of 15. Uh, it's just, it. we're not seeing the creative firepower out of those. Uh, but that said, I think, you know, you look at something like, uh, one of the marketing stunts we included was the Deadpool uh, Blu-ray takeover, where when Deadpool 2 was coming to theaters, uh, the Fox Home Entertainment Basically let, uh, let them redo, came, or came up with the idea, honestly, to redo all their Blu-ray covers to have Deadpool invading them. So it's like The Martian with Deadpool's face in the helmet, or uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, or City Slickers, or whatever. Um, but that was all created by the in-house team at Fox Home Entertainment. You know, They came up with that idea, then they hired an agency to design the covers. Mm-hmm. But it's not like the agency said, we've got this big idea. So I do wonder if we're going to see more of that kind of balance where the in-house teams are the ones creating it. But, yeah, then you still hire a production or a creative agency to make it make it happen. But that way you're not paying the real big dollars, which is uh, the strategy. You know, yeah. strategy and concepting is where you spend your real money, uh, not so much on production.
2: But. Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely um, a trend we'll see. And, you know, moving towards this balance. Because um, like, you, like you said, you know, there is just the creative – Power that agencies have um, that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Then, when we come back, we're going to talk about our predictions for TV and media and also for creativity and creative marketing. So, uh, we'll be right back.
2: Support from our show today comes from our friends at Facebook Blueprint. Building a successful business is only half the challenge. Facebook Blueprint gives you free training and tools to teach you everything you need to know about building your brand presence on Facebook and taking your business to the next level. Visit fb.me slash blueprint slash ad to learn more.
1: All right, we're back. Uh, Jason, uh, you are going to hit us with your predictions for uh, TV media. You're welcome to kind of tackle whatever aspect of your very diverse beats uh, that you would like. So uh, hit us what you got.
0: Yeah, so um, so I think one one of the, uh, the big ones when you look into TV next year is I feel like the industry com- conversation in 2019 is going to be dominated by Disney this year and not Netflix uh, and that is primarily because there's going to be two huge events that are going to bookend the year, uh, both from Disney. The first is the close of the Disney-Fox merger which has been in the works for more than a year now and is widely expected to be finalized early in January. And then the other is the launch of Disney Plus at the very end of the year, which is going to be Disney's big new streaming service that uh, you know they're going to be trying to take on Netflix. And it really seems like the way that they're putting that together, it is going to be the one out of any of these contenders – that has the best chance of, of kind of holding its own. That's not to say that it's going to surpass Netflix, but it's certainly going to be able to kind of you know, maybe keep pace with that. And I wrote about this a little bit in um, the last issue of the year when we had to do predictions, and some people interpreted me to be saying that, like, Disney's going to be bigger than Netflix this year, and that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that I feel like we're going to be – Disney's moves are going to just be talked about more because they're going to have such a ripple effect throughout the industry. So, uh, you know, starting just with, with the shakeout of – how Disney-Fox merger is going gonna, is gonna to end up going with all of these properties migrating over to, to Disney and then some of them being spun off into this new company that we're calling New Fox ultimately is just going to be called Fox and how is that all going to work and then how is this new streaming service going to work and how is it going to hold up to Netflix and some of the other new competitors. So I feel like we're all going to have Disney on the brain um, from, from January to December.
1: Now, Jason and I are both uh, parents, and I I feel like it is not optional for me to get whatever this Disney streaming service (laughs) is. It will not be up to me. Yeah, Uh, and
0: and that's what's kind of smart about what they're doing is they're mining their own IP, intellectual property, to come up with shows that even if you're not interested, if you have kids, they're certainly going to be interested. They're going to want – the new Star Wars series. They're going to want the High School Musical series. They're going to want the Monsters, Inc. series. And these are all series that are in development and that are going to be exclusive to this new, this new platform. And you think about at and which is launching a streaming service at the same time in the fourth quarter. They just don't have anything that can compete with that on the level of content that you or your family must have.
3: I was just going to add that it's not just if you're a kid
0: yes some no, adults no, it's here. True. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I will not name. Yes.
3: Love Star Wars yeah. and other things.
0: Yeah. And and it's and and they are. It's not just one Star Wars series. It's going to be a ton. They're going to do a live action series. They're also going to bring back um, uh, Clone Wars. I think. I mean, they they have they have a, they have multiple series in the works for all of these different you know big Disney brands. So they are going to um, they're going to make sure that you have no choice but to submit. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, and so that was kind of the the question I was going to ask for you, Anne Marie, and Diana is is you know again to me I'm just like yeah sure that makes total sense like my kids, uh, they're gonna that's gonna be a big value to have all because Disney's been as many have noticed weaning a lot of their content off of the current um, mm-hmm. you know when they when I when I first got Hulu and and of course Netflix for a while now. Uh, there was so much Disney content; it's all gone. <laughs> it's like down to just like here's here's Thor Ragnarok. That's about all you get. <laughs> uh, and and so I'm curious though for millennials, for younger who who don't have kids, I mean, do you think that this uh, that this Disney streaming service is going to have appeal? Or I mean, what's your take on it?
2: I think that millennials are very into nostalgia and like things that remind them of their childhood. Um, I don't know if I'll subscribe, but I think about one of my best friends is a huge Star Wars fan and a huge Disney fan. Like someone like her will be all over this, and I don't think that she's a rare person in her interests. So I definitely think millennials will be into it.
1: All right, Jason, hit us with another uh, prediction for
0: 2019. Uh, the, the next prediction kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about with this new Disney streaming service, and I feel like if you look if you look into 2019. There's three big new streaming services on the horizon. There's Disney, which we've talked about already. There's AT&T, which we've also talked about that's coming out in the same time frame. But we really don't know what is on tap for that except that apparently they're going to share the rights to Friends, which is part of the (laughs) Warner Brothers library. But you could already get that on Netflix. And then there's also Apple – which you know, they've been kind of stockpiling original series and starting to film original series for more than a year now. We still have no idea what it's going to look like. But presumably at some point this year, they're going to finally tell everybody of whether this is folded into Apple Music or whether this is kind of some new offering. So you think about these three new OTT services that are going to suddenly come on the market competing with Netflix Amazon, Hulu, CBS All Access, all these other streaming services, YouTube Premium. And I feel like there's going to be a real kind of come to Jesus moment for uh, consumers and then also for the media companies making these services because realistically, one person can probably only afford to subscribe to let's say two or three of these. If you cut the cord, maybe you can squeeze in another one or two. But I feel like with all as all these options come in – Everybody is going to make some tough choices about which ones are most important to them. And that is going to – that's going to lead them to you know, maybe some people who have been subscribing to one service for a long time are going to just cut it completely or maybe they're going to switch to a thing where they kind of rotate through these services every month. You know, They subscribe one for a month. They drop it and move to the next one and then you're going to see this subscriber churn um, across the board. But I think that this is going to really be a big you – know, we're going to see a little shake out of the ott offerings as uh, as people finally really make need to make some tough decisions about which ones they're going to keep subscribing to
1: where do we stand on sports on live sports with these you know this seems like it's been a hold up for a lot of people for years but we've made some headway in the last few years where are we looking going into 2019 in terms of streaming availability of live sports well, you,
0: you've seen a bit more of that. The, the last NFL deal, they uh, all of the, the NFL providers uh, now have streaming rights. Uh, the, those The big sports packages aren't up for another year or two. So nothing is really going to change on that front this year. But the streaming services really have a long way to go to prove that they can be trusted with live coverage, frankly. You see what happened over at AT&T has this new streaming service, BR Live where they were doing this uh this this golf uh OTT this this uh uh Tiger Woods Phil Nicholas uh competition and there was a huge uh, problem with the, people couldn't subscribe to it, and people. So they they basically had to just drop it and make it for free. And this is just this was like a real high profile thing. This was AT and T's chance to kind of show what they could do in this space, and, and they kind of dropped the ball. And I think you're going to see a lot of that with people if when you're when it comes to live TV. And Netflix has said this they've uh the, that's just people do, don't really want to go to the streaming services and i understand where an amazon may feel that landing an nfl package could get people to go over there but i don't think that Anybody has proven that they can be trusted to, to reliably deliver live streaming service um, you know, without buffering, without, without things going down. And if you're a sports fan, you're not, you're not going to stand for that.
1: All right. Well, what's another prediction for next year?
0: Uh, this is also a bit related to, to the big Disney-Fox merger that we talked about. But I feel that between what happens with Disney-Fox going together and New Fox being spun off – there's gonna it's gonna take so much time to adjust um, in in the industry to these new realities and and how everything's gonna work that when it comes to next year's upfront uh, I feel like publishers and marketers both are gonna just be too preoccupied by figuring out okay how does my FX buy work now that FX is not with Fox and is part of Disney and. Uh, new Fox now. There's going to be a new ad sales chief, and how is that going to work? So I feel like a lot of the you know everybody beats the drum about we need to talk about addressability, and we need to talk about uh, you know we we need to talk about targeted TV more. And I feel like uh, everyone is going to. Just default to handling the upfront in the traditional metrics metrics that they always have, and that they're going to once again kind of punt off on a uh, punt on um, tackling the critical issues of kind of measurement and addressability for another year. So a lot of the complaints about how uh, advertising, TV advertising, is transacted. I don't think that a lot of those are going to be addressed this year because there's going to be bigger fish to fry, which is figuring out how to deal with all these new networks that have kind of changed hands, changed companies, have new people running the show.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jason, for walking us through those predictions. I definitely recommend everyone keep an eye on Jason and his team's coverage on adweek.com. A really fantastic coverage of the TV industry, the video streaming industries. Uh, it's great stuff. Let's uh, move on to me, I guess. Uh, Creative uh, predictions for next year. Uh, I've got, I've got a few. Kind of, uh, I'd be curious to hear your feedback on some of this. Uh, We, I wrote a a predictions piece, as uh, several of us did in uh, the last issue of the year, in the print issue. One is branded everything. Uh, so what I mean by that is this year we saw. Uh, so in the past two years we've seen a lot of branded clothing, right? Branded apparel, this kind of supreme approach of like, oh, do some cool KFC fried chicken sweatshirts, which are legitimately actually pretty good. <laughs> um, and uh, and then this year it was like beer, right? We had help me remember these. We had the IHOP beer. We had a Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin' beer uh and then there's one more i'm forgetting there was the last uh blockbuster beer <laughs> there's like oh, a few wow. more.
3: <laughs> i missed that one
1: uh and the, and there's more there's more i'm forgetting um but i think it's going to keep going i think i think the brand's got the the recurring theme has been that if you're the first to come up with something like this you get a lot of publicity if you're the fourth to the point that I couldn't even remember one just now, like uh, then you're not gonna. And so I think what you're going to see is agencies, especially, because this is so in the wheelhouse of agencies to be like, we're going to make a branded kombucha. You know, it's like what whatever that is, um, there's going to be this kind of arms race. And I think it's going to reach a tipping point in 2019 where it just gets kind of silly and it doesn't generate quite the headlines that it used to. But for now... Uh, people still love it. I think it fuels those kind of morning talk show, uh, did you hear about this kind of moments, and it <laughs> fuels sites like ours and BuzzFeeds and everybody. Uh, so for now it's working, and I think you're just going to see it get crazier and crazier of what people can brand and what they can co-brand. Uh, and so so that's, that, that's my prediction on that. Uh, the one that I think would be really fun, although I, I don't know. I don't know if there's enough talent out there to pull this off. Uh, but I think Ryan Reynolds really put on a clinic this year in how to be a celebrity entrepreneur. And I think we're going to see this kind of new breed of, of celebrities like him. Because, you know, if there's one thing celebrities pay attention to, it's other celebrities, right? And everyone's seeing him. He bought, for, for those of you who don't know, let's see when this, this is probably... I think it happened early this year. He was on a shoot, and he ordered a Negroni, and they brought it out, and he said it was the best Negroni he'd ever had. And he asked, what kind of gin is this? And they said, oh, it's aviation gin from Portland, Oregon. And so he ended up wanting to learn more about it and became an investor, and they, they now call him the owner, which I think might be largely a PR thing, uh, but he, he does own a stake in it. Uh, and, man, he has just been... Uh, flood in the zone with some really fantastic marketing uh, this week he put out a video that he narrates and that he wrote himself uh, about the process behind aviation gin of how they make it it is ridiculous he's lying about all of it but it's still tremendously entertaining so let's listen to a little bit of that newest uh, clip of Ryan Reynolds explaining uh, the process of how an American gin ma- owned by a Canadian uh, gets made the reason some people don't drink gin is that strong juniper taste so, after apologizing to each berry individually,
0: we beat the living hell out of them. Creating a smoother, more refined finish. To ensure that heavenly taste, every bottle of aviation is ordained by the Unitarian Church of Fresno, California. And then, before it departs home, serenaded with the healing music of Sarah McLaughlin. Some might call this overkill, but the next time you visit your local mixologist and you murder that silky smooth Aviation Martini, well, who's the killer now, asshole? Aviation,
2: an American original. Now owned by a Canadian.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, you've got between that and uh, George Clooney's uh, tequila, Casamigos, being purchased uh, by Diageo for uh, like a billion dollars,
3: I think. Yeah, I think uh, it was, too.
1: Uh, I mean, so it just goes to, like, Ryan Reynolds, I'm sure they're making money, but that's not why he's doing it. I, I think he's just really enjoying the process and that it's a creative outlet for him, but that he also probably enjoys making some bank off of it. Um And, you know, and then you've got George Clooney, who that was more of a passion product, project. Uh And sold it for a billion dollars so I just think that this is going to be the year where you don't necessarily see the big big celebrity uh, CEOs in the sense of your Jessica Alba's and your Gwyneth's and your uh, Rihanna's right like I don't think you're going to see people starting multi billion dollar companies necessarily I just think you're going to see more who are like "I, I like doing this on the side it's kind of fun I like making stupid videos with me and you know putting it on my Instagram feed and making money uh, so I don't know, Diana Emery. You think? Do you think, or is this just this just Ryan Reynolds being good at being Ryan Reynolds? <laughs>
2: uh, I think that we'll continue to see that. Another celebrity entrepreneur, I think that I've seen talked about a lot this year is Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. expanding her Draper James line, and that's really become a big force. And you know, I do think you see some celebrities try to launch. Actually, speaking of Ryan Reynolds, you know, trying to. Like lively, you know, tried to launch that website preserve a few years ago and ended up shutting it down after like, I think, less than eighteen months. Um so you have ones that don't do so well. But then I think when you have celebrities who really um, kind of hone in on a niche or something that feels very um, true to who they are, um like even a Gwyneth Paltrow, it can be very successful. So I definitely think this is something that we'll see uh, a continuation of. In 2019,
1: yeah, and it was interesting seeing the backlash on Gwyneth this year, right? Like, uh, you know, with people, it, it's she's gone so deep into the goop uh, kind of aspect of her, of that being such a big part of her life that you know it's 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 become a, a, as big as her movies, maybe even more so in terms of relevance. And I have a feeling that not every a- actor <laughs> and like star wants that level of investment, like wants to literally be running a high-profile, potentially PR disastrous kind of uh, uh, mega brand. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think I think we're just entering a new phase where in the 90s you saw a lot of celebrities just investing in stuff more as a long-term investment and honestly getting taken advantage of a lot. Uh, I think that's changing now. I think they're getting a much more hands-on and that they're actually, like, starting things that they really uh, care about. So. That should be interesting to see who pops up. Who is the next? Because Ryan Reynolds, yeah, all that started this, like, February, I think. January or February, he bought uh, Aviation. So it can it can happen quite fast and turned into the, a huge, uh, you know, aspect of his kind of personal brand, I guess. Uh, and uh, speaking of brands, uh, partnering with brands to save the world is uh, maybe this is me being optimistic. Um, But my hope, my prediction for 2019 is that you're going to see more brands uh, maybe introduced by their agencies, but you're going to see more brands connecting with nonprofits, with advocacy groups uh, to help spread a message, not just like, hey, for everything we sell, we'll donate a dollar to you know, children in, you know, in need, like that's kind of the traditional brand slash nonprofit partnership. I think what you're going to see more of is something like uh, what we saw in uh, in London and in the UK, we had... Um, The agency mother created a a piece that we've talked about in this podcast called Rangtan, uh, narrated by Emma Thompson. And they made it. So they made the the agency made this for Greenpeace. It's about palm oil production and how devastating it is for orangutans and for wildlife and for the environment in general. And that's it. It was just a Greenpeace video. It was very well done. But then Iceland Foods, a a grocery chain based in uh, the UK, they were like, oh, we want that to be our holiday ad. And so they basically just took the ad, slapped a message at the end about how we're we have phased out palm oil from all of our house you know house brands, um, all their you know their products that they sell, uh, and that was it. You know, and so they basically took an ad that already existed and gave it this much bigger amplification, Uh, and I think we're just going to be seeing more of that where brands say, hey, you're already doing something cool and effective, and it kind of overlaps with what we're doing. We want to help amplify that Uh, instead of just, yeah, we'll give a dollar for every paper towel roll uh, or whatever that we sell. So I I think that's one trend we'll see. Uh, The other thing, and maybe we're getting a little deep in the, the weeds of the creative process here, but this gets back to some of the changes that I think Diana was talking about, about marketing moving in-house, I think what we're also seeing is that there's a lot of big players uh, in the advertising space these days who were not in it uh, quite a few years ago, namely consultancies. Uh, that's the big one. You know, that the, instead of these advertising holding companies, you have these uh, big consultancies like Accenture and Deloitte, uh, Coopers that are looking to buy ad agencies, to buy uh, controlling stakes in some of these businesses. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're also seeing that a lot of times they don't necessarily want to invest in traditional ad agencies so much as in production. Uh, so we've talked about this a little bit on this episode, but you've got a big demand for production. Production companies used to just be not the sexiest place to work. They're the ones who do your CGI and they do your editing and they do your audio. And, you know, those kind of like almost like cleanup. I don't mean to sound dismissive because I think they're incredibly talented, but they're at the bottom of the food chain of who gets paid first and who gets paid most. Uh, And so production was always kind of near the tail end of that. Lately, I think a lot of people have seen, a lot of brands have seen that there's value in those production. And so why not, why don't we just work with them directly? So one of our top 25 ads of the year was Unlock by Apple. Uh, That was, their agency didn't do that one. That was they worked with a production company called Furline uh, that that did that one, and we're seeing that more and more. And so we saw when Martin Sorrell uh, left WPP this year and started his new uh, his new company. I think it's called S Four that the first big acquisition he did was of a production house, Media Monks. Uh, And so I think we're going to see more and more working directly with production. And we're also going to see that have a big impact on experiential marketing, on activations. This was a huge trend we covered a lot this year. Um, But you're going to see that more people right now, it's like, oh, here's our pop-up store. It's about colors or it's about ice cream. You know, I think we're going to see it really stepping up to be more like what we've seen out of giant spoon with the really cool south by southwest world stuff that they did uh and more recently for the Spider-Man I think it's called Into the Spider-Verse uh you know you're just going to be seeing people really step up this experiential uh and in-person kind of uh physical production and it's it this works really well because experiential needs stuff for people to do it's like if you're going to do a pop-up if you're going to do a storefront or a Uh, thing at a conference like you want something for people to do you don't want to just look pretty and then production companies have been building these really cool vr ar you know digital experiences but they don't have any audiences to actually play with them they have no place to present them uh, oftentimes so this is a nice marriage of experiential and production kind of coming together i think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2019 all right that's it. That's all of our, I think we hope we've, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but you can check adweek.com. We've got a lot more articles about what we're anticipating for 2019. You can look back at our favorite ad campaigns and marketing stunts of 2018 as well. So much year in content. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Diana Anne-Marie, uh, Jason, thank you for making time for me.
2: Of course. Happy to be here. Yeah. Anytime.
1: All right. Well, I will talk to each of you in 2019. <laughs> 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 at least on the podcast. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. Our theme music is by home. Uh, this episode was edited by Lane McGibney, produced by Anya Fernando with audio production by Josh Rios. Uh, big thanks, Lane, Anya and Josh for everything you've done this year. You guys are an awesome team to work with. Uh, please take a moment. If you haven't already to review us on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, those reviews mean a lot to us personally and they help new listeners discover the show for ad week for the year of 2018. I'm David Greiner and we will be back in the future.